Chapter Two, Part One of the Sea: Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sea: Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume One, by Frederick Wimper. Chapter Two, Part One men of peace no form of life presents greater contrast than that of the sailor storm and calm alternate today in the thick of the fight battling man or the elements tomorrow we find him tranquilly pursuing some peaceful scheme of discovery or exploration or calmly cruising from one station to another protecting by moral influence alone the interests of his country his deeds may be none the less heroic because his conquests are peaceful and because neptune rather than mars is challenged to seat his treasures anson cook and vancouver perry franklin mcclintock and mcclure among a host of others stand worthily by the side of our fighting sailors because made of the same stuff let us also then for a time leave behind the smoke and din the glories and horrors of war and cool our fevered imaginations by descending in spirit at least to the depths of the great sea the records of the famous voyage of the challenger will afford a capital opportunity of contrasting the deeds of the men of peace and those of men of war we may commence by saying that no such voyage has in truth ever been undertaken before nearly seventy thousand miles of the earth's watery surface were transversed and the atlantic and pacific crossed and recrossed several times it was a veritable voyage in zigzag apart from the ordinary surroundings innumerable three hundred and seventy-four deep-sea soundings when the progress of the vessel had to be stopped and which occupied an hour or two apiece were made and at least two-thirds as many successful dredgings and trawlings. The greatest depth of ocean reached was 4,575 fathoms, 27,450 feet, or over five miles. This was in the Pacific, about 1,400 miles southeast of Japan. We all know that this ocean derives its name from its generally calmer weather and less tempestuous seas and the researches of the officers of the challenger and of the united states vessel tuscarora show that the bottom slopes to its greatest depths very evenly and gradually little broken by submarine mountain ranges except off volcanic islands and coasts like those of the hawaiian sandwich islands off the latter there are mountains in the sea ranging as high as twelve thousand feet the general evenness of the bottom helps to account for the long sweeping waves of the pacific so distinguishable from the short cut-up and choppy waves of the atlantic in the atlantic on the voyage of the challenger from tenerife to st thomas a pretty level bottom off the african coast gradually deepened till it reached three thousand one hundred and twenty-five fathoms over three and a half miles at about one-third of the way across to the west indies if the alps mont blanc and all were submerged at this spot there would still be more than half a mile of water above them 
five hundred miles further west there is a comparatively shallow part two miles or so deep which afterwards deepens to three miles and continues at the same depth nearly as far as the west indies a few words as to the work laid out for the challenger and how she did it she is a two thousand ton corvette of moderate steam power and was put into commission with a reduced complement of officers and men captain now sir george s nares later the commander of the arctic expedition having complete charge and control her work was to include soundings thermometric and magnetic observations dredging and chemical examinations of sea-water the surveying of unsurveyed harbors and coasts and resurveying where practicable of partially surveyed coasts the civil scientific corps under the charge of professor wyville thompson comprised three naturalists a chemist and physicist and a photographer the naturalists had their special rooms the chemist his laboratory the photographer his dark room and the surveyors their chart room to make room for which all the guns were removed except two on the upper deck was another analyzing room devoted to mud fish birds and vertebrates generally a donkey engine for hauling in the sounding dredging and other lines and a broad bridge amidships from which the officer for the day gave the necessary orders for the performance of the many duties connected with their scientific labors thousands of fathoms of rope of all sizes for dredging and sounding tons of sounding weights from half to a whole hundredweight apiece dozens of thermometers for deep-sea temperatures and gallons of methylated spirits for preserving the specimens obtained were carried on board steam power is always very essential to deep-sea sounding no trustworthy results can be obtained from a ship under sail a perpendicular sounding is the one thing required and of course with steam the vessel can be kept head to the wind regulating her speed so that she remains nearly stationary the sounding apparatus used needs little description a block was fixed to the main yard from which depended the accumulator consisting of strong india-rubber bands each three-fourths of an inch in diameter and three feet long which ran through circular discs of wood at either end these are capable of stretching seventeen feet and their object is to prevent sudden strain on the lead line from the inevitable jerks and motion of the vessel the sounding rod used for great depths is with its weights so arranged that on touching the bottom a spring releases a wire sling and the weights slip off and are left there these rods were only employed when the depths were considered to be over one thousand five hundred fathoms for less depths along conical lead weight was used with a butterfly valve or trap at its basis for securing specimens from the ocean bed there are several kinds of slip water bottles for securing samples of seawater and marine objects of small size floating in it at great depths one of the most ingenious is a brass tube two and a half feet in length fitted with easily working stopcocks at each end connected by means of a rod on which is a movable float as the bottle descends the stopcocks must remain open but as it is hauled up again the flat float receives the opposing pressure of the water above it 
and acting by means of the connecting rod shuts both cocks simultaneously thus enclosing a specimen of water at that particular depth self-registering thermometers were employed sometimes attached at intervals of one hundred fathoms to the sounding line so as to test the temperatures at various depths for dredging bags or nets from three to five feet in depth and nine to fifteen inches in width attached to iron frames were employed whilst at the bottom of the bags a number of swabs similar to those used in cleaning decks were attached so as to sweep along the bottom and bring up small specimens of animal life coral sponges etc these swabs were however always termed hempen tangles so much does science dignify every object it touches the dredges were afterwards set aside for the ordinary beam trawls used in shallow water around our own coasts their open meshes allowed the mud and sand to filter through easily and their adoption was a source of satisfaction to some of the officers who looked with horror on the state of their usually immaculate decks when the dredges were emptied of their contents not so very long ago our knowledge of anything beneath the ocean surface was extremely indefinite for even of the coasts and shallows we knew little marine zoology and botany being the last and not the earliest branches of natural history investigated by men of science it was asserted that the specific gravity of water at great depths would cause the heaviest weights to remain suspended in mid-sea and that animal existence was impossible at the bottom when some sixteen years ago a few starfish were brought up by a line from a depth of one thousand two hundred fathoms it was seriously considered that they had attached themselves at some midway point and not at the bottom in eighteen sixty eight nine seventy the royal society borrowed from the admiralty two of her majesty's vessels the lightning and the porcupine and in one of the latter's trips considerably to the south and west of ireland she sounded to a depth of two thousand four hundred fathoms and was very successful in many dredging operations as a result it was then suggested that a vessel should be specifically fitted out for a more important ocean voyage around the world to occupy three or more years and the cruise of the challenger was then determined upon the story of that cruise is utterly unsensational it is one simply of calm and unremitting scientific work almost unaccompanied by peril to some the treasures acquired will seem valueless among the earliest gains obtained near cape st vincent with a common trawl was a beautiful specimen of the euplectella glass rope sponge or venus flower basket alive this object of beauty and interest sometimes seen in working naturalists and conchologists windows in london had always previously been obtained from the seas of the philippine islands and japan to which it was thought to be confined and its discovery so much nearer home was hailed with delight it has a most graceful form consisting of a slightly curved conical tube eight or ten inches in height contracted beneath to a blunt point the walls are of light tracery resembling opaque spun glass covered with a lacework of delicate pattern 
the lower end is surrounded by an upturned fringe of lustrous fibres and the wider end is closed by a lid of open network these beautiful objects of nature are most charming ornaments for a drawing-room but have to be kept under a glass case as they are somewhat frail in their native element they lie buried in the mud they were afterwards found to be the most characteristic inhabitants of the great depths all over the world early in the voyage no lack of living things were brought up strange-looking fish with their eyes blown nearly out of their heads by the expansion of the air in their air bladders whilst entangled among the meshes were many starfish and delicate zoophytes shining with a vivid phosphorescent light a rare specimen of the clustered sea polyp twelve gigantic polyps each with eight long fringed arms terminating in a close cluster on a stalk or stem three feet high was obtained two specimens of this fine species were brought from the coast of greenland early in the last century somehow these were lost and for a century the animal was never seen two were brought home by one of the swedish arctic expeditions and these are the only specimens ever obtained one of the lions of the expedition was not a rare sea-fowl but a transparent lobster while a new crustacean perfectly blind which feels its way with the most beautiful delicate claws was one of the greatest curiosities obtained of these wonders and some of the geological points determined more anon but they did not even sight the sea serpent much less attempt to catch it jules verne's twenty miles of inexhaustible pearl meadows were evidently missed nor did they even catch a glimpse of his gigantic oyster with a pearl as big as a coconut and worth ten million francs they could not with captain nemo dive to the bottom and land amid submarine forests where tigers and cobras have their counterparts in enormous sharks and vicious cephalopods victor hugo's devilfish did not attack a single sailor nor did indeed any formidable cuttlefish take even a passing peep at the challenger much less attempt to stop its progress does the reader remember the story cited both by fouché and moking tandon concerning one of these gigantic sea monsters which should have a strong basis of truth in it as it was laid before the french academy des sciences by a lieutenant of their navy and a french consul the steam corvette electon when between tenerife and madeira fell in with a gigantic cuttlefish fifty feet long in the body without counting its eight formidable arms covered with suckers the head was of enormous size all out of proportion to the body and had eyes as large as plates the other extremity terminated in two fleshy lobes or fins of great size the estimated weight of the whole creature was four thousand pounds and the flesh was soft glutinous and of a reddish brick colour the commandant wishing in the interests of science to secure the monster actually engaged it in battle numerous shots were aimed at it but the balls traversed its flaccid and glutinous mass without causing any vital injury but after one of these attacks the waves were observed to be covered with foam and blood and singular thing a strong odour of musk was inhaled by the spectators 
the musket shots not having produced the desired results harpoons were employed but they took no hold on the soft impalpable flesh of the marine monster when it escaped from the harpoon it dived under the ship and came up again at the other side they succeeded at last in getting the harpoon to bite and in passing a bowling hitch around the posterior part of the animal but when they attempted to hoist it out of the water the rope penetrated deeply into the flesh and separated into two parts the head with the arms and tentacles dropping into the sea and making off while the fins and posterior parts were brought on board they weighed about forty pounds the crew were eager to pursue and would have launched a boat but the commander refused fearing that the animal might capsize it the object was not in his opinion one in which he could risk the lives of his crew monsieur moquin tandon commenting on monsieur berthelot's recital considers this colossal mollusk was sick and exhausted at the time by some recent struggle with some other monster of the deep which would account for its having quitted its native rocks in the depths of the ocean otherwise it would have been more active in its movements or it would have obscured the waves with the inky liquid which all the cephalopods have at command judging from its size it would carry at least a barrel of this black liquid the challenger afterwards visited juan fernandez the real robinson crusoe island where alexander selkirk passed his enforced residence for four years thanks to defoe he lived to find himself so famous that he could hardly have grudged the time spent in his solitary sojourn with his dumb companions and man friday alas the romance which enveloped juan fernandez has somewhat dimmed for a brief time it was a chilean penal colony and after sundry vicissitudes was a few years ago leased to a merchant who kept cattle to sell to whalers and passing ships and also went seal hunting on a neighboring islet he was monarch of all he surveyed lord of an island over a dozen miles long and five or six broad with cattle and herds of wild goats and capital fishing all round all for two hundred a year fancy this ye sportsmen who pay as much or more for the privilege of a barren moor yet the merchant was not satisfied with his venture and at that time of the challenger's visit was on the point of abandoning it by this time it is probably to let excepting the cattle dotted about the foothills and the civilized house or two the appearance of the island must be precisely the same now as when the piratical buccaneers of olden time made it their rendezvous and haunt wherefrom to dash out and harry the spaniards the same to-day as when alexander selkirk lived in it as an involuntary monarch the same to-day as when commodore anson arrived with his scurvy stricken crazy ship a great scarcity of water and a crew so universally diseased that there were not above ten foremast men in a watch capable of doing duty and recruited them with fresh meat vegetables and wild fruits the scenery writes lord george campbell is grand gloomy and wild enough on the dull stormy day on which we arrived clouds driving past and enveloping the highest ridge of the mountain a dark-coloured sea pelting against the steep cliffs and shores 
and clouds of seabirds swaying in great flocks to and fro over the water but cheerful and beautiful on the bright sunny morning which followed so beautiful i thought this beats tahiti the anchorage of the challenger was in cumberland bay a deep-water inlet from which rises a semicircle of high land with two bold headlands sweeping brokenly up thence to the highest ridge a square-shaped craggy precipitous mass of rock with trees clinging to its sides to near the summit the spurs of these hills are covered with coarse grass or moss down the beds of the small ravines run burns overgrown by dock leaves of enormous size and the banks are clothed with a rich vegetation of dark-leaved myrtle begonia and winter bark tree shrubs with tall grass ferns and flowering plants and as you lie there hummingbirds come darting and thrumming within reach of your stick flitting from flower to flower which dot blue and white the foliage of begonias and myrtles and on the steep grassy slopes above the sea cliffs herds of wild goats are seen quietly browsing quietly that is till they sent you when they are off as wild as chamois this is indeed a description of a rugged paradise near the ship they found splendid but laborious cod-fishing laborious on account of sharks playing with the bait and treating the stoutest lines as though made of single gut also on account of the forty-fathom depth these codfish lived in crayfish and conger eels were hauled up in lobster pots by dozens while round the ship's sides flashed shoals of cavelli fish that are caught by a hook with a piece of worsted tied roughly on swished over the surface giving splendid play with a rod and on shore too there was something to be seen and done there was selkirk's lookout to clamber up the hillside too the spot where tradition says he watched day after day for a passing sail and from whence he could look down both sides of his island home over the wooded slopes down to the cliff-fringed shore on to the deserted ocean's expanse End of chapter 2, part 1